Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. We didn't plan it this way, but July and August seem to have become mafia months here at Crime Capsule. If you joined us last time for our interview with Harrison Fillmore, you heard about the Tongs of Chicago's Chinatown, the organized crime ring that operated in the shadows of the larger Chicago mob. It was every bit as ruthless, calculating, and, for criminals, honor-bound. This week, we're heading a few hundred miles east to Pittsburgh, the Steel City, to explore the same phenomenon, an outfit that throughout the last century operated in the shadows both of New York and Chicago, but which, in its prime, was every bit as lucrative and lethal. Paul Hodos is the author of Steel City Mafia, Blood, Betrayal, and Pittsburgh's Last Dawn, published in April by the History Press. A native of the Pittsburgh area, Paul brings a local's expertise to his topic. He actually has a family connection to the outfit, as you'll hear shortly. With that kind of deep, personal background to bear, the only question is, how could he not write about it? Paul, welcome to Crime Capsule, and congratulations on your new book. Thank you so much. So your book came out in April, and you've had a few months to go on the circuit since it has been released. How has the reception been so, thus far? Really good. It's uh, surpassed my expectations. Uh, I actually wrote a history book a few years back, and military history, and uh, the reception was fine, but this has blown that out of the water. Uh, the local community, and especially in Pennsylvania, Ohio, took to the book really well. You know, that's a tight-knit area. Fascinating to see the many overlapping connections across those state lines, for sure, which is something you definitely get into in the volume. But before we get into talking about the book, tell us about yourself. You are, in fact, a local boy from that area, aren't you? Yes. I'm originally from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is where my family immigrated from Slovakia. Everybody worked at the steel mills. My generation was kind of the first ones that were not in that business because um, it collapsed in the 80s. My father uh, was one of the few that still had a steel working job up and up until like the 2000s when he retired. Deep roots there in that in that sort of steel coal culture. Johnstown is about an hour and a half away from Pittsburgh. So that was kind of the big city for us, like where you would go to hang out when I got older. Much more rural where I was, but uh, still, still a small city, I would call Johnstown. So our sharp-eared Crime Capsule listeners will remember that not a few months ago, we had an expert on some Johnstown history uh, join us. We had Bruce Seavey, who wrote this amazing book on an individual whose name I imagine you know probably quite well, Judge Joe Okiki, <laughs> mm -hmm. whose hands were as about as dirty as you could possibly get them. I mean, so surely, surely you must have grown up hearing stories about this guy, right? Yeah, like there were many news reports. And even you know, when I was a kid, I obviously wasn't watching the news that often. But it was still, it's still in my brain. Like when you mentioned that name, it immediately clicked in, like remembering the late 80s and the early 90s and my parents talking about it and their friends talking about it and it being on TV all the time. Yeah. I mean, one of the uh, sort of astounding uh, developments in that story, of course, was that he had to flee the country. I mean, once, once the, um, 
the rail, the, the, the train went off the rails, so to speak, and there was he had no options left. He couldn't buy his way out of <laughs> out of an indictment. You know, he 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 bought a plane ticket, and <laughs> there <Yep>. he went. <laughs> uh, did you do you recall growing up hearing about the the flight from justice? You know, the, the fugitive judge. Yeah, yeah, I do. I definitely do remember that. And unfortunately for Johnstown at the time, he might have been the most famous at that time from that city. As you know, that, that that city is also kind of famous for having a huge flood in the late 1800s called the the Johnstown Flood. And it was one of the most famous floods in history. But at, in my time frame, uh, when I was a kid, Judge Okiki was definitely one of the people that was well known from Johnstown, unfortunately for bad things. Well, your expertise on people from your area who have done bad things is very well received <laughs> around here. So we are uh, very grateful to have you join us. Now, just on your background, um, you are not only an historian, you have had another career which will be of great interest to our listeners. And I'm going to try to phrase this carefully. Um, my understanding is that you did work for the FBI as an analyst. Now, I, I just have to ask, Paul, is an analyst considered a spook? Were you a spy? <laughs> no, uh, it wasn't as exciting as that. It was exciting sometimes, but not, not as exciting as that. The basics of that job are research, writing, sometimes testifying in court, sometimes helping to interview uh, sources and people. A lot of basically helping the agents out on the squad and if you're at headquarters, like I was for a long time, doing a lot of oversight work, picking out national trends, like let's say, you know, you were working terrorism or organized crime, you get, when you're at headquarters, you get to look at all the cases, pick out the trends from those cases and put them all together. And, and then you brief the executives, you brief sometimes the field agents you, on what you found, and you try to help them push the cases forward and address whatever threat you might be working at that time. I believe, so we have had judges, we have had police, we've had detectives and investigators, but I, I think you are actually our first guest who has worked in that particular capacity as a criminal analyst. Uh, let me ask you this. The the word research means many, many things <laughs> to different people, but in this particular case, I can, I can see how your training there must have directly informed your work on this particular book. Can you give us a sense, just in your own words, of what, what it meant to be able to kind of bring that sensibility as a researcher to the digging through archives and interviews and so forth to, to craft Steel City Mafia? More than a few FBI people end up writing some kind of book later on uh, after they leave, usually. You know, you know how to conduct an investigation. And really, when you're writing a book, especially about true crime, it is an investigation, you know, it might be a really, really cold case. You know, like you said, you kind of know where to look. You're you're looking at investigative files and especially FBI files, obviously. I authored a lot of those and I also read a lot of them. So I could pull out the things that are relevant, the trends that I wanted to highlight in the book. It was kind of like writing a paper for work, only you have to make it more entertaining than that. As far as like the interviews go, those were great. I had a, a really good source, a former agent who worked on this case, and he was awesome. And whenever I had a gap in my documents, I could just ask him a question, and, and he was there to do it. And that's that's what good sources do in law enforcement, and that's what, what he did for me for this book. 
Well, that's very generous. And um, sometimes when folks get out of the game, so to speak, they just want to leave it all behind. So for him to be able to do that is is very much a, a, a gift. Let me ask you this. I mean, and I, I would love to sort of nerd out on this all day long, but can, can you tell us just a little bit about the levels of sort of clearance and classification that you had to navigate in order to do some of the research? I mean, did you have to kind of obtain permission to do the research or to look into areas that were not necessarily under your remit as an analyst? Or how did all that work? Nothing was really classified in the book because uh, it was all so old. I did have to request FBI files through FOIA process. So that slowed it down quite a bit. Uh, if anybody's looking to become a true crime author and you want to get FBI files, like plan like five or 10 years in advance because they take a while. Sometimes a lot of the files will come back like with a ton of redactions, even if they were from the 80s. Once again, you know, that's if they think that the person is still alive, et cetera. Even though there, it wasn't classified anymore, it was, it, was, it was good to go. They were still crossing out those people's names so they don't get, you know, killed by the mafia, whatever, whatever might exist of it still. How did Steel City Mafia get started? What was the actual origin of the book? When I was a kid and, you know, we were talking about Okiki, I also remembered hearing about the big mafia trial in 1990. Later on in the 90s, when I started to read newspapers myself, I would catch the stories uh, from the later history of the family. My grandpa used to tell me these this story of this bookie who was married to one of his cousins was killed by the Johnstown crew of the Pittsburgh Mafia back in the 60s. And uh, it was really the only Mafia murder in Johnstown that's been documented. I remember hearing that story from him, and that kind of piqued my interest too. And it was always sitting there in the back. And then a very good author named Russell Shorto came out with this book called Small Time. It's about actually the Johnstown crew back in the 60s. Uh, He was related to uh, one of the members of that crew. It was his grandpa. And so that kind of rekindled my interest in this topic, and I was already starting to research it in a professional kind of way. And then, and then I was like, you know what? No one's ever written about the Pittsburgh Mafia, and it has an extremely exciting story. And I feel like a lot of even Pittsburghers and, and people from Ohio and Pennsylvania and West Virginia don't really know about it. And so I was like, I'm going to do this. And I had those skills from the Bureau. From the moment you started writing till the moment that you sort of handed in you know, the manuscript, how long would you say that, that took? Two years. Yeah, I'd say it was two years. And uh, that's that's pretty short for a book. That is moving at a very good clip. We'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah. You were, I imagine, you were writing, uh, you know, very disciplined to deliver that cut, a manuscript of this length at, at um, you know, in that in that time frame. So kudos, or as the French would say, chapeau, chapeau, right? Thank you. <laughs> you are dealing with such an unusual time and place, I think, for the study of of the mob. Typically, we think of the biggest cities, and yet your argument here is that you had an outfit which was modeled in some way after those in the biggest cities, but it was much more homegrown and it was much more uh, insular in, in, in some ways. So, you know, your, your account, uh, as I was reading through it, presented a couple of different major themes, and I just wanted to take those in turn um, with you. Uh, the first is just that very notion of size. So you advance the argument that uh, there is a kind of tension or relationship between the smaller crime families like you get in Pittsburgh and the much larger, more formalized um, outfits like in Chicago, New York. So what's interesting about this particular tension is that the small families 
operate in what seems like a semi-autonomous relationship to the big outfits, okay? And, and forgive me if I, if I misread something, but it seemed to me as I was going through your account, sometimes you have the small families collaborate, work with, engineer, you know, incidents um, alongside the, the larger outfits or they'll take orders from the larger outfits. And then other times the larger outfits will just leave the smaller families like the Pittsburgh crews alone so long as they don't bring too much heat you know, on, on everybody, right? So can, can you help us to see that relationship t- to have almost like a, like a provincial mafia versus a recognized, you know, established group? So the thing that's one of the things that's really unique about the Cosa Nostra, which is this, this thing of ours, which is the mafia, it is interconnected in a way that I think not many criminal organizations are. Back in the days when the book was written, 80s, 90s, uh, they still had a lot of those networks intact. And uh, they would do, like you said, joint criminal schemes uh, pretty often, especially things that would span territories like union control, Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters, you know, like it seemed like every family was involved in that in some fashion in the United States, you know, like it, what, some like Pittsburgh in a very, in a kind of a smaller way. Um, and then other other places, uh, you know, like New York and uh, Kansas City and Chicago, like in a big in a big way. And uh, it's like you said that the dawn uh, of a territory, whether it was more of a provincial type of family like Pittsburgh or a bigger one in New York, has a ton of power. You know, they they can kill their members if needed, and they can make decisions about criminal schemes and uh, without consulting with anyone because they're basically the lord of their territory. But as, as you would have in medieval Europe, you know, there's a lord and then there's the king or the overlord. So there was a little bit of that going on in the American mafia too. And New York is the place where the commission resided, which was sort of the deliberative body of Cosa Nostra, the five families of New York. They were the ones who set the rules um, for families, especially families like east of the Mississippi. Um, and every family... Uh, in that sphere, you know, it's sort of had a, a representative on the commission, someone that would represent them to that body, that very powerful body in New York. Um, and the Pittsburgh families was the Genovese family, not to be confused with the name of their boss, uh, who wasn't directly related to them, uh, really. And But uh, the Genovese family is still... Uh, if you read, you know, the, the newspapers in New York is still the most powerful mafia family in the United States. And back then, I, I don't think it was any different. And so they had to, from what, from my research, they had to get permission to open their books to make members from the Genovese family. And they had to maybe check in sometimes for certain things. But it really, the making of members was, from what I could see, was really the main lever that the Genovese family had over Pittsburgh. Other than that, they pretty much left them alone. They were pretty independent besides that. There were some instances in which you write about uh, in which you have infractions, you know, disrespect or, uh, you know, too much ambition, which leads to 
somebody's end. And I'm thinking particularly of a, of a scene very early in the book where you describe um, uh, an individual, I think it's Bonanno, who goes to a banquet in New York. And, you know, he had already transgressed in in one particular way, well, that reaches the ears of the commission. They invite him to this banquet, and of course it is the last meal that he ever eats. And it wasn't even clear to me if he got to enjoy the banquet at all before he got whacked. Yep, that is an incident from the 1930s, and it was really the first test of the commission. His name was Bazzano, his last name was Bazzano. He was the boss of Pittsburgh at that time, and... uh, he murdered, uh, it was sort of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre of Pittsburgh, if you know that famous hit in Chicago that Capone did. He killed three brothers, the Volpe brothers, that were his enemies. And they had friends in New York, and they went and complained to the newly formed commission. The commission thought that Bazzano had overstepped. Like you said, they killed him at that dinner. It, it really sort of cemented the power of that body and, and the power of New York vis-a-vis the smaller families. So I'm sure the Pittsburgh Mafia didn't like being the example, but they ended up being the example like, hey, we can interfere if we want because we've got hundreds of made guys and you might only have a few dozen. There's a, a tension that emerges sometimes where you have, you know, like an underdog, right? And they say that the, the cornered dog is the one you have to fear the most in a fight, right? Um, do you think, just reading your account of some of the early bosses in Pittsburgh, right? Amato and uh, LaRocca and so forth. Do, do you... Do you think that the Pittsburgh crew in general, being smaller, had maybe more of a chip on its shoulder and were in fact more violent as they as they got started? Or do you think that's even possible to compare sort of uh, you know, overall proclivities or tendencies towards violence between crews? Is that just even a, an acceptable question? I don't think so, and uh, that's with all due respect, but it, I'd say that their levels of violence were probably on a par with other families. If if you look at their neighbor, Cleveland, which almost destroyed itself because of a family civil war, which was then followed by a war with Pittsburgh over Youngstown, and their violence destroyed them, and I'd say Pittsburgh kept it to a level that was very limited, especially under Amato and LaRocca ticked up again under Genovese for various reasons, but even he tried to keep it under control, I think. I'd say they were uh, on, on a par with other families and possibly even a little less violent than some of them, at least with disciplining their own members using murder um, because they had less members, and I think they cherished those made members more. Associates, not as much. Uh, you, you were more likely to be killed if you are an associate, but as far as the the bigger families go, you know, like you talk about Philly and some of the ones in New York, like they're legendary bloodbaths. And I feel like Pittsburgh was able to avoid that to a certain extent. Yeah. It, it, as I was reading your account, it felt like, you know, some of the violence in, in Pittsburgh was maybe a bit more targeted and less kind of helter skelter. Um, but no, but every bit as grisly, right? I mean, like every bit as, as, um, as lethal. And it's funny you mentioned Cleveland. Our listeners cannot, of course, see this, but our producer, Bill Huffman, who is working with us today, is a Cleveland native, and I hear him nodding very loudly about the crime <laughs> families and, and the, uh, the the violence that, that uh, you know, emerged in his hometown, um, for sure. Well, let me ask you about uh, the second theme that emerged in your book. And you know, this is one which is common to many portrayals of 
of the outfit, but but I thought it was just particularly interesting in yours. It re- really kind of stood out in 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 bow relief, as they say, uh, and it's about the sort of politics of personality, right? So you have a structure, and in fact, the first few pages of your book outline you know the hierarchy of um, the Pittsburgh outfit. Uh, you have a structure, and 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 the the structure throughout the course of the the 20th century, which was really the lifespan of the Pittsburgh Mafia, um, it, it holds, right? For the most part, it absolutely holds together. You didn't see sort of like major revolutions. You didn't see sort of huge shakeups or coups. You know, in our previous interview um, it, with the um, uh, Harrison Fillmore looking at the Chicago's Chinatown, you know, there were rival factions that began to launch wars and so forth, and it led to major shakeups within the Chinese you know, organized crime uh, community there. But here, here you have a structure which kind of holds over, the, over the, uh, the lifespan of the organization. But what's interesting, of course, is that structures, commands, rules are always at the mercy of the boss, the capo, as you said, okay? Whoever that happens to be at the time, Amato, La Roca, Genovese, et cetera. So how does your average foot soldier, your average associate, navigate the the difference between there's a structure you can appeal to when things go right or wrong, but then there's also like the, you know, he might be your buddy who's gone up in the ranks a little faster than you have and you got a good relationship with him and sometimes you can appeal to a personality. It, It seemed like the rules weren't always so hard and fast. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And uh, I think in organized crime generally, but definitely in the Pittsburgh family, uh, because of the wide span of the territory that was very, very huge, spread out, and you had, you know, those area bosses over little, you know, little cities and towns um, who made a lot of independent decisions. Um, You know, you had to tread very carefully and you had to be aware of politics. You had to be aware of the personality of your, of your, the area boss and, and sometimes the bigger boss up in Pittsburgh too, because, you know, one mistake can lead to your demise or your demotion or just even just getting kicked out of the rackets sometimes. Yeah. You, you open the book with a scene in which someone is, is assassinated because he inadvertently let an informant into the organization and then boom, he's curtains, he's done, you know? Yeah. And and that guy's a good example. Like he, he was uh, a very low level associate, someone who probably did not interact with the hierarchy very often at all um, because he was just so, so down there. Um, And then, you know, he, he, you know, and it's not really his fault. Like he, he thinks this guy is just another gambler and, uh, let lets him into the family and and starts meeting with him and you know I'm sure I'm sure the undercover agent was throwing money around, so you know he, he thinks it's just another another mark or another person they can become an associate possibly somebody who could help them make money, and it turns out it's an undercover agent which in the '60s which is when that story happened, is uh, is something that I don't think the mafia is thinking about at that time that's kind of a new thing like somebody undercover in your family. Uh, you know, post on Nebraska, I think they, they thought about that a lot. But at that time, you can't really blame them. Um, and, uh, of course, 
they have to blame somebody. And, you know, and then his, his interactions with the person who was the acting Don at that time, you know, alleged, allegedly, uh, is, you know, and it ends up, uh, being a, a very terrible confrontation where he ends up, the, the associate ends up lying and ends up paying for it with his life. Um, so yeah, even a lower level member has to have some knowledge of, of that higher politics and, and like, you know, Hey, I'm being targeted by law enforcement and, and powers that are much bigger than me. And it could, this unintended consequences that I'm in a coffin. Yeah. Let me ask you the, I'm going to ask you a really obvious question and I'm going to ask for a much better answer than the one I have. <laughs> You're the expert here. <laughs> um, how do you rise through the ranks? I know one way is you make a lot of money for the outfit, for your local, you know, crew, for your local boss, etc. You know, you bring in the bucks. You know, that's a pretty that's a pretty good start to climbing up the ladder. But how else do you climb up the ladder? I would say, and this isn't just for Pittsburgh. I'd say your your simple answer is the number one thing. You you, you make a lot of money. E- illegally and uh, and, and <laughs> you kick up, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you kick up your cut, the cut up to the boss, and you make sure that it's definitely the cut that is fair and that and that they've asked for, and, or that you think they are they're due. Um, as long as you kick up, you probably won't have a lot of problems with the boss. Um, I think another thing that sometimes is overlooked is that you have the right friends when you're growing up. A lot of these guys knew each other from when they were kids back on Larimer Avenue um, in the East Liberty section of Pittsburgh. And uh, and they created bonds when they were kids that still existed, you know, when they were old men. And uh, there's this implicit trust between them. You have to be, I would say, a little bit brave and put yourself out there and do some crazy stuff, you know, uh, a bank heist here, uh, armored truck robbery there, and and you know uh, expanding your gambling territory. You know you have to take these risks, but you can't push too hard because you know that's how you get killed. What if if you step on another uh, made guy's toes before you're a made guy, and then you're dead? Um, so there does take it takes a lot of street smarts. It takes a lot of uh, business savvy, and uh, and the right connections, uh, some of which, you know, is where you were born and where you lived. Um, sometimes, you know, back in the old, old days, it might matter if you were Sicilian or Calabrian. Um, that that mattered less as time went on. You're, most of your guys here are actually in Napolitano, uh, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, like the, the leadership uh, at the time that I was writing was, was more that. Um, the consigliere was uh, Sicilian, but the other guys had the the mainland Italian connections. And, and I think that's generally the mafia going going forward uh, through the years. But yeah, the, if you add all that stuff up and a little bit of luck, I, you can become a made guy. It was very hard to become a made guy in Pittsburgh. They weren't just making anybody. They kept the family small. So, And there were a couple of instances which you note in which folks who were not Italian by blood or, you know, that maybe they were of mixed ancestry and so forth. There were very rare instances in which someone who was not, um, you know, Italian by birth would be made, but those were, you know, few and far between. Yeah. Like the, the, really the one instance where that happened was, uh, Chucky Porter and he was half Italian. 
Um, but but his usually when you're half Italian, you get made into the mafia. It's your father that they they require it that it comes to your father. Um, the Pittsburgh family broke the New York rules a little bit by inducting Chucky Porter, who had it through his mom. Um, and uh, that that is very rare. I mean, if you if you had seen the movie Goodfellas, like Henry Hill, who's the main character, it's uh, Ray Liotta's character. He was half Irish, half Italian, but he had it through his mother. And his family, the Lucchese family, would never make him because he was Italian on his mother's side. In Pittsburgh, if you were making enough money and had enough connections, like Port, like Porter, you could get inducted. Yeah. You know, one, one other aspect of uh, rising through the ranks, you know, on the way to becoming made, which struck me actually in your book, was... Um, loyalty of course is paramount right but in in particular loyalty is often defined as not snitching i mean maybe you get thrown in the clink right like maybe you get picked up but you know can you keep your trap shut can you protect the integrity you know of the outfit that's that's a pretty strong sign that you're made man material you know yeah yeah going to prison for a few years is kind of part of a rite of passage um, and you know, if you don't snitch, then that's like a sign. Hey, like you said, we can, we could trust this guy. We're going to induct him because he did his time and he was able to come out and not talk. Yeah. And of course you've got examples of folks who, uh, definitely flip and then, uh, you know, <laughs> surprise, surprise, certain things happen to them. Now, let me ask you, <laughs> um, that, that of course leads beautifully into my last major theme, uh, to ask you about this week, which is. You know, you describe how everybody's coming up together. Okay, you name Larimer, Larimer Avenue is kind of a place where the, you know, the perps are coming up together. But Pittsburgh, you know, for all of its geographic size, I mean, we, we know Pittsburgh is still a village, right? It's still a small town in some, in, in some ways. And Johnstown, of course, is, is too, and everybody knows everybody. And so frequently in these smaller um, sort of, you know, regional cities, so to speak, you know, the guys who end up doing the crimes and the guys who end up putting them in cuffs, you know, they grew up on the same block, right? I mean, there's, there are relationships between the criminals and law enforcement that smaller cities have that you may just not necessarily find in an LA or a Chicago or New York where everybody kind of just meets each, everybody for the first time, you know, like, okay. So, so I'm curious you do describe a couple of instances in which law enforcement were, you know, bought and sold. They were on, they were on the take too. They were involved. But in general, I mean, how how would you characterize the Pittsburgh specific dynamic of long-standing relationships between organized crime and law enforcement over the years? I would I would characterize it as. Uh, a pretty big factor. Um, one of the things that makes the mafia unique is uh, that it has to, it's not just the drug business, it's not just prostitution. And they're also doing this, you know, illegal gambling is really their bread and butter. And uh, that is a very static type of business. It need, you need kind of a location, you know, this is before like offshore betting became very popular and internet gambling and all that. Um, so you need a, this stand, this location. You need 
runners, you need uh, you need uh, people who are taking taking bets and everything. And so, bookies, um, all, all yeah, all these places have telephone numbers and 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 addresses, and so you need law enforcement and or local politicians like mayors and and city council people to look the other way. And so bribery and, uh, and, you know, trading favors and, and that sort of thing is completely necessary. And that happened in every territory in the Pittsburgh mafia. And they, and they had some like higher up people on their, on their payroll, you know, in, in the police sometimes, um, you know, and specifically in Youngstown, because that's the best documented, uh, you know, you had a situation where up until the nineties, where they basically owned, uh, all, all of the politicians and police who mattered, um, in that area. And, and, you know, it even really, it's much rarer because uh, the FBI isn't necessarily made up of locals, uh, who, who grew up in that area. There's the FBI tends to at each office, you have some locals, but there are also people who are transplants from around the from around the United States who are just moving to Pittsburgh because that's the office they were assigned to. So there isn't as much of the local flavor in the FBI office, but even there, there were some who were turned in Pittsburgh and in Cleveland. Uh, uh, you know, in Pittsburgh, it was uh, a secretary um, who ended up passing some some of the investigative secrets to the mafia uh, during the eighties. There's one instance you record in which uh, there's a raid. I believe it's a federal raid on a gambling house. And um, <laughs> there's this kind of amazing moment afterwards where the local PD end up standing guard out, outside those, that's, those gambling halls, basically saying, so, you know, the feds, the feds get in there and they do the raid. And then the local PD come in after and that they're actually serving as a security detail so for, in case anything else happens, you know, down the road. Yeah, and you yeah. just think about like, well, this is interesting. You know, what does that conversation look like? It's pretty awkward. Um, uh, and, and like, yeah. that's what you get when yeah. organized crime gets its tentacles so deep that it's just, you get, there's sometimes an adversarial relationship between that, the local police and the, the federal that is, that is a nightmare to deal with. <laughs> Well, and that, that actually is maybe my last question for you is, and this is drawing on your experience, you know, working for the Bureau as an analyst. Um, does it always help to be an outsider or do, do you in fact need that kind of local expertise and local understanding, you know, of personality and landscape and, you know, terrain and that sort of thing, you know, political terrain, um, in order, in order to develop these longstanding relationships. We're going to talk a lot about Michael Genovese next week, and one of the things that's interesting about him is that he, in fact, maintained relationships with law enforcement that were not always hostile. They were not always antagonistic necessarily, which is really interesting about him uh, for being, you know, capo of the area. But, um, you know, in, in your experience or from your vantage point, do you – where do you stand on that? You know, to, how do you how do you create the successful blend of local expertise versus transplant objectivity? I think that for local expertise, and as I said, you know, if in local bureau offices there are definitely people there who are from the area, and that is very useful. Um, 
And so they, they have that innately, right? Like, just like I would do when I'm writing this book, um, you're, you know, you, you, I just know certain things about the area, which made it easier when I was looking for what to look up. Uh, and, and I knew that there was going to be something about, you know, like as far as the steel industry goes, for instance, that's something I lived, you know, my family was affected by, uh, the rise and fall of it. Uh, as far as, uh, outside people what you need is go-getters like as you would need in any job like what you need and when you're doing federal law enforcement and you're not from that area you need to uh research the heck out of it basically you need to go in you need to talk to people you need to uh and i think that's what my retired fbi agent helper did with this book roger roger greenbank who i i give a lot of credit to he Went in there in the late seventies when when all when all this uh, you know when the rise of Mike Genovese was happening, and uh, he was in a, a, an office that I think did not know much about the local mafia at that time. Uh, they were a little bit in the dark about a lot of things. He went in there. He cultivated sources. He he pushed the envelope. He learned as much as he could about the local culture. I, I think that he became basically a de facto Pittsburgher by the end of his tenure there, um, <laughs> despite being from sort of that Delaware, Maryland area. Um, and, and he pushed the buttons in the right, in the right ways, and uh, he overcame that lack of local knowledge. And I think that he was that perfect mix where of he had the objectivity, uh, but it, then he, you know, certainly by the late 80s, and, and I'm sure before that even, like he was up on everything that was going on like he was he was definitely the expert well we will uh, reap the benefits of those investigations next week as we look at mike genovese uh, because that is is such a fascinating character and um, reminded me in, in some ways of tony soprano but in other ways is very unique and um really appreciate your uh, sharing this with us thus far paul thank you for joining us and we will see you back in a week's time Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks' lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con.